Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. I do want to point out some other statistics as well. The overall employment rate does not show the racial disparities. So the black unemployment rate, for example, was 15.4%. And within that, men's unemployment in the black community, 16.4%. So much, much worse than the overall unemployment rate at 11.1%. Let's bring in somebody who tries to place people in jobs where they are needed Tom Gimble is founder and CEO of LaSalle Network, a staffing and recruiting agency, and it's been going since 1998, so it's seen several business cycles. Tom, thanks for joining. What are you seeing the last month or two? Who's calling you to find them workers? Well, that's the interesting thing is business is okay. It's not terrible. It's definitely not pre-COVID levels, but there's not consistency across verticals. And per, you know, I've had my business for almost 25 years and through 2001 and the 2008, 2009 recovery, um, you'd see verticals that were doing well. And now it just happens to be company by company, depending on how they're staffed and what their client mix is. And it's really not a vertical industry per se. So what we're seeing across the board, though, is IT continues. And I'm not talking tech companies. It could be a manufacturing company, but they're hiring technology talent continues to be the leader in the, in the, the fields that are hiring. Hey, Tom, so as you look at some of this data, again, a couple months here, we've had some uh, pretty strong data as, as the labor environment tries to recover here. Is this just simply corporate America kind of bringing back some furloughed workers, or is this any type of new hiring, growth, growth hiring, I would characterize it. What are you seeing? It's definitely not growth hiring. It is okay. absolutely dependent on PPP money and go- companies having government-backed uh, finances in order to bring people back. And I think that's what we're seeing is the intersection right now. People say, why is the stock market up when there's 40 million and now 35 million people unemployed? And the answer is because we haven't had a true intersection of suffering from an economic basis. Even people that haven't been called back, they're getting $600 a week uh, unemployment from the federal government on top of their state unemployment. So they're at forty five dollars to $50,000 a year. And while maybe not hold to where they were, they're definitely not uh, begging for peanuts in the parking lot to be able to eat. They can pay their bills. And so you get these situations of what we're looking at. Um, well, the numbers are, are a mirage. It's a little bit of smoke and mirrors until we get the September-October numbers. Everything else is, is really smoke and mirrors because of the government funding. So, Tom, tell us about the data you collect on people that tell you they are looking for jobs, actively seeking jobs. I presume you know, you've got rolls and rolls of people, previous customers and continuing customers. Well, the interesting thing is, is when you have so many service workers, hospitality, waiters, waitresses, uh, hotel employees, so on and so forth, is really where the lion's share was. Then on the flip side, in corporate America, you saw a lot of excess salespeople. So what companies were doing through a growth market from 2010 to, uh, you know, really February of this year, is they're hiring in anticipation of business picking up and continuing to grow. So companies were hiring more people than they needed for today, but to be ready for next month, next quarter, next year, and get them trained and acclimated. Those are the people that are now on the street. 
they got let go because the business wasn't there yet. And so the the hard part is trying to find out that there, there's very few companies that say, we're going to do a downsizing, line up our best people, and let's get rid of them first, right? That doesn't happen for the most part. Um, and, and so we've got a lot of people that are just confused over were they, were they let go because they made too much money and companies needed to, to take a hit, which is true. There's a few people like that. I've actually hired some of them myself. But, but secondarily, there's a lot of people that maybe weren't even qualified for the jobs. And at 3.5% unemployment, you get a lot of companies taking chances to hire people. At 11% or 14% unemployment, companies don't take chances. They only hire proven commodities. So, Tom, we're starting to see, you know, in some key states, California, Texas, Florida, you know, big labor states kind of seeing some uh, the virus go the other way. Uh, and, you know, states and cities beginning to kind of close down once again. Are we going to see that in the numbers over the next couple of months, do you think, and to what extent? Yeah, I think we're going to see that quite a bit because it's coinciding with the PPP money wearing off. And even though they extended it from 10 weeks to 24 weeks, the majority of companies that took the money, it expired, they used it at the rate they were supposed to, and it's expiring at the, it expired at the end of June. And so now what you're having is an intersection of companies uh, don't have money to pay their people from the government. They're not going to have an influx of business due to quarantine and businesses being shut down by their state governments. And at the same time, uh, they're going to have no choice for survival but to lay people off. So I think you're really at an interesting intersection between the, the COVID health crisis and uh, a false sense of economic security from the government money starting to run out. It'll Tom, be a real interesting third quarter. What about your own business? How do you work at a time like this when companies have such a choice, if they are even able to hire, that they can really just probably put out a you know help wanted sign literally on their windows of their properties? Do you also suffer and, and how are you managing? I appreciate you asking. So it's a real interesting dynamic. We, we've got about two, a little under 250 employees uh, on staff, and we haven't laid off a soul at LaSalle Network. So what we've done is, is number one, we've always managed the company in a fiscally conservative way to be ready for situations like this. Number two, companies are hiring. You've just got to find the pockets. And, and that's the biggest challenge. And what I've seen more than anything else in our company is we've always been a culture-first company. And when you have happy people that are appreciative of the, 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 where they work, they're going to execute the mission in a lot more efficient way than other folks. And so we've been able to pick up business and we've moved internal recruiters. So we've moved more people to our IT practice. We've moved them off call centers, which has slowed down because of the proximity of workers in a, in a closed-in environment. Our supply chain and our HR practice, our human resources practice is picked up and we've moved recruiters into that space. And so you've really got to do what I call chasing the gap. You've got to find where the, the gap and opportunity is. But to your question um, about companies being able to run an ad and getting people, that's exactly why they need us, because there's too many people applying to a job. With 40 million unemployed people, you run an ad, you're going to get hundreds, if not thousands of people who aren't qualified for it, and you can never get through that batch on your own. Tom, what is your sense kind of going forward of uh, maybe how the workforce may change um, in this country? We've had more and more people working from home. We probably had a lot of companies recognizing that, gee, we can do this. Do you think there's going to be material changes and maybe how companies staff themselves and, and maybe where uh, they elect to have their uh, workers? 
You know, there's a, there's a couple different uh, hypotheses on, on this that I have. But, you know, first and foremost, I, I look at the situation, and it's going to be driven by company profits. And if companies are going remote with workers from home and they're doing well and making money, they'll stay with it. And when they don't and the, the times change, you'll see it reverse, no matter what the situation is. Because if you're not making money, that is the definition of why you, you're in business. Um, so that, that will truly dictate it. Secondarily, though, on the aspect of work from home, um, what you're, you're going to see is if people can work from anywhere, you're going to hire people that are the least expensive, it's like offshoring. People didn't offshore to, to India or the Philippines or, or, or what have you because they thought the work was better. They thought it was cheaper and it was acceptable. And so what you're going to have in the same situation is if you can hire a developer, if everybody's going to work from home, why would you pay somebody $200,000 in San Francisco when you can pay $110,000 in Montana? And that'll affect the the real estate markets, the rental real estate markets, the home ownership in in major metropolitan cities, and there'll be a huge ripple effect. I don't think work from home. I think two years from now, you're going to see office back to levels that they were pre-COVID. Tom, when you rake out race in your data, do you notice anything? Well, it, 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 there, there's, a, there's a lot of, of difference between in, in race from college degree to non-college degree and where people are working. You have major metropolitan areas that, that obviously have a higher minority standpoint versus more rural areas. And I think those continue to be issues but that, that every company is going to face. Um, the biggest challenge is how do we get more minorities into colleges to have college degrees to compete against uh, what's been traditionally a white labor force. And that's where we spend a lot of our time with either uh, historically black colleges and universities and state colleges that tend to have a higher minority concentration. Hey, Tom, just quickly, what do you make of this, um, the issue about the uh, H-1B visa issue? How much of it is that going to be a problem for U.S. recruiters? It's a it's a big issue when you when you're looking at, at tech talent and and bringing people in and not just traditional like software developers and being stereotypical like that but but engineering as well and a lot of the the STEM type positions science technology engineering and math there's been a lot of those roles that have been H-1B visa type situations and and there's really twofold number one is having that talent available and number two. Um, is the message that it sends of diversity and people wanting to come here and, and, and work. Now, on the flip side of it, if that talent is not going to be allowed in the country, companies are just going to offshore the business anyways. And the majority of big technology companies, they have facilities, offices, or strategic alliances with companies in other countries. And so then we're going to lose the people uh, from being here, and we're actually going to lose the payroll taxes into the system because we're just going to be paying an offshore company to do it for us. I I think it's a real detriment, uh, politics aside, I think it's a real detriment to the economy and to getting the best talent in the world to want to be in America. Tom, thank you so much for your insights today. Always just fascinating getting insights from somebody who really, you know, is at the cold face of the labor market and those who are looking for work. And obviously we're seeing millions and millions looking for work right now. Tom Gimbel joining us there, founder and CEO of LaSalle Network. It's based in Chicago. It's been staffing and recruiting since 1998. And really, there are some messages in what Tom is saying there, Paul, you know, most obviously that this is just not going to end anytime soon. There are so many people to be placed. 
Yeah, exactly right. Plus, you've got the again those big states: California, Texas, Florida, some others, Arizona. Uh, it's going to be you know a real issue to try to uh, deal with those numbers, which are sure to go the other way here as some of those states kind of pull back on the reopening. So we are talking about this morning's jobs report. It was eagerly anticipated, the number perhaps better than estimates, but we should mention that estimates ranged from half a million to nine million. So there was really a huge, huge disparity in what economists thought was going to be the case in this data. Let's bring in an economist now, Danielle DiMartino Booth. She is CEO and Director of Intelligence at Quill Intelligence. She's also also Bloomberg Opinion columnist and also author of Fed Up, an insider's take on why the Federal Reserve is bad for America. Danielle, thanks for joining. Explain to us what's good about this data. Larry Kudlow says it's about the furloughs coming down and that's going to continue. What else is good about this data? Well, you know, uh, Amani, the thing is, because of the misclassification error, I I think a lot of people in my world have started to follow the Department of Labor data that come out on, on a weekly basis. It's much timelier, if you will, and it's not prone to the same seasonal adjustment. So uh, if you look at that data against the backdrop of 164.6 million in the U.S. labor force, you see that, that it all in, including the pandemic unemployment assistance program, you have 31.5 million Americans right now collecting unemployment insurance in one of the state, uh, state insurance programs or the CARES Act extended benefits programs as well. So that is a record high number, and that is what I follow the most closely because it's a hard number. And it's, it's not prone to seasonal adjustments. It's simply the number of Americans collecting unemployment insurance as of the same week as the survey week that we saw for the non-farm payroll data this morning. So, Danielle, you're based in, in Dallas. You have a, a grounds eye view of kind of what's happening in that state. Give us a sense of kind of where you think uh, a state as big and as diverse as Texas, how is it dealing with the resurgence in cases there? And kind of how do you think that's going to impact employment numbers going forward as we think about not just Texas, but Florida and California and Arizona? And and California has just shut down uh, 19 counties as well. Uh, uh, So the way I look at this is, is traffic patterns. It's open table reservations. It's Google trends in terms of individuals looking for unemployment insurance benefits, and we've seen them tick up for the last few weeks. There are very few paying attention to initial unemployment claims, but they are definitely moving in the wrong direction. They've missed the consensus for three weeks in a row, meaning they've come in higher, and that is what we're seeing here in Dallas and in other places that are slowing down. Restaurants are closing back up. Bars have obviously closed again, and there's much more reticence on the part of a lot of people to go out and spend, and that is filtering through to the number of people applying for the first time for unemployment insurance. Exactly. We just literally a few minutes ago had Nashville, Tennessee revert back to phase two from phase three. So it's happening incrementally around the country. Danielle, what are re-employment benefits and bonuses? Well, re-employment benefits and bonuses are, uh, A, they're theoretical. And some of the things that we've heard thrown out would be potentially a $4,000 credit to travel around the country um, and and go see America. It it, it would come back to you with your taxes. Basically, what they're trying to do is incentivize Americans to come back into the workforce, many of whom are making more money today, making $600 extra a week that is set to expire on July the 31st. I truly believe that the Democrats are dead set on extending that $600 
because of the effect that it would have as we, as we see one state after another lift uh, rental moratoriums. Um, uh, and the national moratorium, by the way, uh, on federally assisted uh, renters lifts on July the 25th. So you've got two different cliffs, if you will, for people who have been relying on stimulus to tide them over. So, Danielle, give us a sense now, given we've got a couple more data points here on the labor front. How do you think uh, this U.S. economy is going to, uh, you know, presumably we're going to get this brutal uh, second quarter GDP print, but how do you expect the remainder of the year into 2021 to develop from an economic activity perspective? Well, so I'll be much more comfortable when I start to see the number of people collecting pandemic unemployment assistance claims begin to go down. We've had 1.8 million added to that in the data that we have. Last week, it was 1.6 million. So these are new entrants uh, looking for CARES Act relief. This pandemic unemployment assistance lasts through the end of the year, by the way, December the 31st. So I'll be happier when I start to see the number of Americans collecting unemployment decrease, because that means that you're going to get more velocity and an ability to generate growth beyond the mathematical bounce that we know that we're going to see in the third quarter, even as, as Goldman Sachs has estimated, we've closed down 40% of the economy a few days ago. That preceded, as Vani just said, Nashville and Miami and 19 counties in, in California. You're going to need a truly reopen economy. The president would be best served to mandate masks, which would get a lot, of, a lot more people out and purchasing, spending, generating economic activity. Danielle, we also had Larry Kudlow a little earlier talking about helping the restaurant industry, the tourism industry and the entertainment industry. He talked about capital gains, moves, investment write-offs. How, how do you see that all happening? Will we need a mixture of everything from, from what I just mentioned to those re-employment benefits and bonuses to a continuation of PPP? I, I think you're right. I think it's a combination of many things. I worry that the, the, the relief for the restaurant industry is going to come too late because of a recent Yelp survey that found that 53% had already made the decision to close 53% of restaurants in America, a third of wow. retailers in America. Wow. These are small businesses. So if they're going to do something to try and rescue the, the restaurant industry as so much of the country recloses, it's something they need to do very, very quickly. Danielle DiMartino Booth, thank you so much for joining us. As always, Danielle is the CEO and Director of Intelligence at Quill Intelligence, also a former advisor at the Dallas Federal Reserve and also a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. And that's not enough. She's also the author of the book entitled Fed Up, an insider's take on why the Federal Reserve is bad for America. The market, uh, Vani, you know, it's kind of giving back some of those gains. We were up about 400 and change on the Dow, uh, now up about 175. So I think people are recognizing that uh, while the jobs data was certainly a strong, strong number, better than expected, it's a, you know, backwards looking number and maybe going forward, the numbers may not be uh, as good going forward. Well, and of course, as we get, you know, local updates throughout the morning from various parts of the country, you start yeah. sort of worrying about coronavirus again, right? And and the surge in some areas, not even a resurgence, but, a you know, a first surge in many areas, which are causing, which is causing areas to shut down again. Yeah, exactly right. And as you mentioned earlier, Vani, uh, Nashville, Tennessee, kind of rolling back from a phase three, opening back to a phase two. So as they get more cautious. This is Bloomberg Markets with Paul Sweeney and Bonnie Quinn on Bloomberg Radio. Well, the narrative of the COVID-19 pandemic really over the last week to 10 days to two weeks perhaps has been 
the surge in cases in key populous states such as California, Texas, Florida, Arizona, states that had generally been uh, lightly touched by this virus in the early stages. To get a sense of kind of where we are, where we're headed, we are so fortunate to have Lauren Sauer with us. She's assistant professor of emergency medicine at the Johns Hopkins uh, School of Medicine. And I might note that the Bloomberg School of Public Health is supported by Michael Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies in this radio station and TV station. Lauren, thank you so much for joining us here. Some really grim numbers coming out of uh, some key populous Sunbelt states. What's your take? Yeah, I think that what we're seeing is the impact of uh, reopening too soon, essentially. Um, and I don't think it's unreasonable. Dr. Fauci the other day on um, some of his testimony said that he expected that we could possibly see 100,000 cases here in the U.S. and um, per day. And, and I think I think we're headed there. You know, we had a 50,000 cases day yesterday. And um, I think the impact of these reopening, this new mixing and, and the wanting so desperately to go back to normal is, is showing its face. The reopenings that need to be, you know, moved back, need to be slowed down. Have they contributed to new spread, Lauren? I, I think we, we're still looking at the data on that, but I, I do think we are seeing new spread because of those reopening, particularly in places like bars and restaurants and indoor spaces where there is crowding. Um, you know, there was this rush to get back to normal and, and we're not in a place where we can be back to normal. And I think the sooner we sort of realize that and, you know, remove the politicization of, you know, social distancing and wearing masks and things like that and just look at them as really public health measures, the better off we'll be. So, Lauren, there is a playbook on how to bend the curve, which is a term we spoke about a lot early uh, in this pandemic. Uh, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Delaware, Pennsylvania, some states who really had some success and are continuing to see some pretty good numbers. There's no reason why this can't be applied to other parts of the country, is there? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think... um you know, we have a lot of lessons to learn from places like New York. Massachusetts is doing really well. Um, and I, I think they've been pretty restrictive on what they're allowing with reopening. And they also have a lot of community buy-in around masking and social distancing. And so learning lessons from the states that have gotten it right, um, and even some of the states that have had to backtrack and say, we, we thought we were ready and we're not, I think that's critical. One of the challenges is you know, that we have to change our approach if we learn new, we may have to change our approach if we learn new information and communicating that to the public um, is really important. So the message you're getting today might be slightly different than the message you're getting tomorrow because we've learned these new things. Yeah, where do you go for new information that you trust to move on the conversation and the research on coronavirus, Lauren? Are there specific places and and is it a day-by-day thing or can we really only find new information on a month-by-month basis? Yeah, I think it is a day-by-day thing. There's a lot of science happening really, really quickly, and we have to be a little careful with the science that's coming out. You know, there's been an uptick in the use of preprints, which essentially is, is, is research that's being published before it's been peer-reviewed, and so how we use that information to make operational decisions has to be, you know, a little better understood. Um, I am partial to the Hopkins resources. I think we're doing, um, I may be a little biased, but I think we're doing a lot of really good work. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of really good resources on the Hopkins site. And and I think um, information, 
Outbreak.info um, is an is a website by Scripps that I really like that um, is calling um, research together, and it's been really valuable. It's updated regularly, and it's really useful. So there's a lot of sites out there. It's just a matter of, you know, parsing through it. Sometimes it feels like information overload, and I think part of that is because this is so new and we're, we are adapting our approach based on new information that it feels like there's this overflow of info. Well, Professor, when I think of Johns Hopkins, I think of two things, lacrosse and world-class <laughs> kind of science, uh, medical, uh, you know, uh, knowledge. And that's why we're so fortunate to have folks like you and the other folks at the Johns Hopkins uh, talking with us. We appreciate that. One question is, this whole mask, you mentioned kind of the mask wearing thing. It's kind of a second nature for us here in this part of the country, but I know in a lot of parts of the country, it's really not. Does that require some type of federal mandate, if you will, to wear masks in public? How do you think we play that? Yeah, a federal mandate would be one option. I think it's um, those can be challenging to enforce. I think we also have to respect the state police powers that give the state the um, authority to in, in, um, enact public health measures um, and health care measures. Um, I think the biggest thing, honestly, is the messaging and the communication around it. We're in a bit of a trust vacuum when it comes to um, you know, public health authority and leadership um, and messaging. And we have to find a way to make the masking or the face coverings or even the physical distancing not about the politics behind it and who's supporting what, but about the fact that masks keep people safe. The evidence is telling us that my mask is keeping you safe, your mask is keeping me safe. Um, and together we can protect our most vulnerable communities and try to get back to some semblance of normalcy. Lauren, our conversations with you are literally our highlights for the day. So thank you very much for making yourself always available, even with everything that's going on. Lauren Sauer is Assistant Professor of Emergency Medicine at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. And I should say she has a Public Health Preparedness Master's in in Homeland Security Management as well. So she really knows what she's talking about. And that outbreak.info, once again, that website, potentially another source of information for us all. Well, we have an up market today, uh, off the highs, certainly, but certainly, uh, you know, up about 1% on the S&P and the Dow, as Greg was just reporting on the back of those better than expected jobs numbers to get a sense of kind of how we should be thinking about equity investing here today. And what is a very, very uncertain market, a very, very uncertain uh, virus uh uh, update where we are. We've got some states that are doing well, some states that aren't doing well. Barry Ritholtz, Bloomberg Opinion columnist and host of Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio, is also the founder and chairman and chief exec investment officer of Ritholtz Wealth Management. Barry, thanks so much for joining us here. First, I just want to start off on kind of how you're thinking about the markets here. We had a better than expected jobs number. We've had some talk uh, from Larry Kudlow about more fiscal stimulus. Um, we've heard from Chairman Powell over the last several days. Kind of what's your view right here? So the jobs numbers are looking backwards. They're telling us about June. And and so far in this insane COVID economic era, every one of those reports have a giant asterisk on it. We won't find out what the true numbers look like for months and months and months. They're, they're not only going to be revised, but they keep changing categories. And I'd rather see a positive number than a, a negative number, but, you know, take – Good or bad, take those numbers with a grain of salt. Yep. Looking forward, um, originally there was a, a little bit of pushback on the idea of a stimulus. 
it wouldn't surprise me if we see maybe a trillion dollar direct to employee bypassing the company sort of stimulus. Maybe some sort of, uh, I can't believe I'm going to say this again, I feel like uh, Charlie Brown trying to kick the football from Lucy, but maybe we'll get an a, a infrastructure uh, plan and some sort of stimulus. I, I, I've been wishfully thinking about that every year for, I think, since my bar mitzvah. And, um, <laughs> and, and you know, the market clearly is uh, thinking in terms of looking past 2020 into 2021, um, but there's a lot of variables, and it does not look like we're doing a fantastic job managing reopening. And if this gets much worse, I, I think you're going to see the economy start to um, reflect it in, in some of the data. So, Barry, the president earlier on was talking about a bit of a comeback in Q3, certainly before the election. I mean, we all know that that's very unlikely, except for the fact that there is only one direction that the economy can go from here, and that's in an improving direction. Does that mean that markets at records now continue to move higher when we actually see improving data? I'm going to challenge your thesis, and, okay. and there is always two ways a market can go. We have come way off the lows of, of March, April, May. We, we are doing so much better than we were. If this entire reopening process and, and, and the number of infections continues to spiral out of hand, I, I don't think it's a high probability, but it's a real possibility that, that we head back towards those economic lows mm. if we don't get this virus underhand. Now, now, I only think that's a 15% possibility. I don't think that's the most likely outcome. I, 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 I'm more concerned about just slipping a little bit and bouncing along kind of where we were this month, last month. Still a huge improvement from March and April, but not anywhere near where we should be. And a lot of this is going to be dependent on how well we manage uh, the lockdown. Here in New York, where the numbers have gotten so much better, I've spoken to a lot of colleagues and neighbors and uh, other people we work with in the city, and I'm surprised at how few people are planning on going back into their offices before January 1st. We, we just saw Broadway get locked down for the rest of the year. That's a but I suppose just development. Just, I know I'm taking Paul's question here, but I guess that's my point, Barry, because if the market isn't selling off on some of this, then will it ever sell off? I mean, what will be the thing that gives the market permission to sell off, or does it? Well, what does the market have to do with the economy? I, I, I know that's a glib answer, but when you look at the data over history, the, the, at least along shorter periods of time, obviously when we see uh, a, a collapse in economic activity, the market has a tendency to follow that. And when the economy uh, begins to recover, the market tends to presently see that in advance. But that said, um, you know, back in April, I wrote a column, April 1st, people thought it was an April Fool's joke on maybe the COVID-19 is not a, a financial or economic uh, event. Maybe it's a meteor from out of space and it's not, it hasn't derailed the bull market. And we're just going to keep going where we are going as soon as we have a little more clarity on a uh, treatment and a vaccine. Mm. Um, think back to 1987, you had a huge move off of the 82 lows, and the market got shellacked, not just that one day, but about a 30-plus percent 
correction. And once the market shook that off, it kept on going higher and higher until the ultimate peak in 2000. This coronavirus crisis, lockdown, and market crash and recovery could end up being very parallel to, to 1987. So, yeah, markets ultimately will respond to profits and, and future um, expectations of growth. But but maybe we're looking at this from the wrong perspective, and, and maybe this isn't the run-of-the-mill recessions that we typically see. They last six to 12 months, the market drops 15 to 30%, and then we start all over. Maybe this isn't a reset. Hey, Barry, just real quickly, I want to go to your recent column because the headline was fantastic. The robots will handle your finances now. 30 seconds, what do you mean there? So Ron Carson runs uh, the Carson Wealth Group, about $12.5 billion, and he's a big believer that AI and data is going to take us to a very different place not so much what what he describes as the robo advisors, the algorithmic trading and and betterment wealth fund, those sort of things, but an entire new approach to um, human computer interaction. You know, once we pass the Turing test, once a computer is indistinguishable from a human when you're interacting over a phone or an internet, hey, do you really need a high paid advisor? I think wealthy people want to deal with a human, and this is a solution to um, smaller portfolio issues. Uh, Ron Carson thinks that eventually it'll be robots and humans working together. It'll be fascinating to see what happens in the future. Yes, maybe maybe you need a human that acts like a robot or a robot that acts like a human. I'm not sure which would be better. Barry, it's always fun to chat with you. Have a wonderful 4th of July weekend. That's Barry Riddle's opinion columnist here at Bloomberg, founder of Riddle's Wealth Management, and of course, the host of Masters in Business, the podcast, which is now in its umpteenth season and is well well worth having a listen to some fantastic masters in business out there thanks for listening to the bloomberg markets podcast you can subscribe and listen to interviews at apple podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer i'm bonnie quinn i'm on twitter at bonnie quinn and i'm paul sweeney i'm on twitter at pt sweeney before the podcast you can always catch us worldwide at bloomberg radio